Welcome to Breaking the Case, True Stories by NYPD Detectives, a podcast series written and produced by the New York City Police Department and supported by the New York City Police Foundation. I'm your host, Detective Carrie Riley. You might remember some of the stories we're about to tell you from the news. We're taking you inside the investigations. You'll learn how the job gets done in the words of the men and women of the NYPD. Our first story is the Baby Hope case from 1991. It's about the murder of a four-year-old girl whose body was found in a cooler on the side of a highway. Detectives from the 34th Precinct decided to call her Baby Hope. And it would be many, many years before they found out her true name. Our reporter is Edward Conlon, a former NYPD detective who worked in the 44th Precinct Detective Squad in the South Bronx. A warning, this story contains graphic content and may not be suitable for everyone. Please be advised. This is the first of five parts to the story. Episode 1, Baby Hope, Into the Woods. Inwood is all the way uptown, the last stop on the A train. It's at the top of Manhattan, the narrow tip of the island where the Harlem and Hudson Rivers meet. Not much more than a hundred years ago, the city looked like the country here, and it can still feel wild. Inwood Hill Park is almost 200 acres. If you're in the woods and you pretend not to hear the traffic, you could imagine you're someplace far away, or in a time before this was the city. On July 23, 1991, at around noon, three men were in the park. They were working on the highway just below the Henry Hudson Bridge. It was a Tuesday. Joe Rizzo was one of the guys working on the road. Me, Bobby Perdue, and Timmy Ohm were walking down the lane. And as we're walking, we're all smoking cigarettes. And I noticed a cooler down off into the woods. I mean, barely see it. And um, Bobby wouldn't go down. Me and Timmy said, all right, let's go down and look. And it was leaning against the tree. So I had a shovel, and I popped the cooler open. And there was cans of Coke and a black plastic bag, and it was filled with water and maggots. And to this day, I still don't know why I did it. Instead of just walking away, I tipped the cooler over. Cans came out, the plastic bag came out. And then with my shovel, I gently cut the bag open. I don't know why I did it that way. Should have just walked away, really. As I'm cutting the bag open, it looked like rotten meat until I got to the ear. And when I seen the ear and then I seen part of the hair, that's when we screamed up to Bobby to call the cops. Sean Kenny was a young cop in the 34th Precinct. The 3-4, as we say. It covers Inwood and Washington Heights. He responds to the scene with his partner, Jimmy Babylonia. We got a call. It was a, uh, a condition on the Henry Hudson Parkway southbound. EMS was already there, and there was a couple of people milling about on, like, the roadway. They said that there was a body down the hill. I looked down the hill, and what I saw, I wasn't 100% sure was human. In the Washington Heights section, sometimes they um, they barbecue pigs, they barbecue turkeys. I wanted to make sure that it was in fact a dead person and not just like a, somebody's lunch. 
So I made my way down the hill to make sure. As I got a little closer, I saw her back and like around where her buttocks was. I made my way back up the hill and then it was just about making sure that the crime scene got as preserved as possible, just keep people away from it. According to the NYPD patrol guide, the responsibility of the first officer at a crime scene is to interview complainant and any witnesses, obtain facts, and safeguard evidence. There are pages of instructions that could be condensed to this. Tell the sergeant, tell the squad, don't touch anything, don't let anyone else touch anything, and don't let anyone leave. The detective assigned from the 3-4 was Joe Neenan. He talked to Joe Rizzo and the other construction workers. Yeah, they were shocked. <laughs> you know, it's just the last... I don't know what they expected to find in a cooler, but I know it wasn't, uh, it wasn't you know, it wasn't a body of a little, little girl, you know. We didn't even know that it was a boy or a girl at that point. It was the side of a highway down an embankment from the bottom of that hill beyond that. There were, like, fields and stuff like that, but there was, there was nothing there. You know, one of the things that struck us as being odd is that they could have hid that cooler a lot better. And maybe nobody would have found it for who knows how long. We thought we were going to solve it really quick. The general consensus that we were going to go back to the squad, we are going to check with missing persons, and this child is going to be reported missing. Sergeant Mark Giffen responded as well. He was in the detective bureau assigned to the medical examiner's office. There was a lot of people there. Crime scene was there already. The medical examiner people were there. There was a uniform trying to keep the media away. And, you know, her being in a cooler decomposing was very aromatic. For Joe Rizzo, the experience was overwhelming. 50 to 100 cops and ambulances and guys in suits. And then they, you know, taped off the area by the tree asked us what we touched, and you know, and it was just a madhouse. We had to get like the trucks off the road, our trucks and everything, just to make room for everything for them. It was a miserable day. How long were you there at the scene? Probably about three hours. You had all these stupid news reporters all over. No offense to anybody. They all wanted to ask me questions, chasing me down the highway. Um, I was in the yard getting changed. Mary Murphy from Channel 2 News, how I remember these people's names is amazing. I'm getting undressed and she's behind me with a camera and a, a microphone asking me questions. It was a horrible, horrible day that I just can't get out of my mind ever. I didn't tell my kids about it for probably 10, 15 years. They knew nothing about it. I couldn't open up a cooler. I could go to a picnic or a barbecue. I couldn't even open up a cooler. I couldn't go near a cooler for a long, long time. I'm getting teary. I'm just talking about this right now. We'll be right back after the break. Back at the precinct, Sean Kenny had a lot of paperwork to do. He also had to voucher the evidence. I had to voucher the cooler. It was very uh, soiled. We had to put it in the trunk of the car to transport it out because the, it was just smelling terrible. Lieutenant Ryan was on the desk. He was a, one of those crusty old uh, Irish lieutenants, you know, kind of grouchy. But he, um, he said, Kenny, this is a big deal. Be careful and take your time to do it right. 
And guys were coming up to me. They were like, you know, do you need anything? Do you need any help? I went down to the morgue to ID her uh, with one of the detectives. And uh, when I um, saw her, she was still tied up and they needed the cord that was around her neck. She was tiny. I mean, she was really, really tiny. And uh, I remember seeing the, the, little, the little kid's face too. Pieces were missing, like it was either decomposed or whether animals got her, I don't know. But it was, it was hard to look at. Sergeant Giffen was used to looking at bodies in that condition. Aside from being a cop, he was a licensed funeral director. In the cooler, she was folded in half, and when they unfolded her, her face remained with her legs. So we had to physically put it back. An autopsy was done the next day. The victim was approximately three years old, white or Hispanic, 38 inches tall. That's three foot two. She weighed 20 pounds, but it was estimated that there were five to 10 pounds of fluid loss. She had black hair. The eye color could not be determined. They got fingerprints, but they were bad quality. Palm prints and footprints were readable. The preliminary finding for the cause of death was homicidal asphyxiation. Additional tests had to be done, but the opinion would stand. Here's Sergeant Mark Giffen again. Then the next step was our role trying to get her identified. We reconstructed her face, uh, took several, probably 50 or 60 pictures, went down with a forensic artist, and they actually, that's where the sketch came from that was in the newspaper and everything else. And tell me how you do the, that reconstruction. What's involved? A lot of what we were using was a soft wax. There's models to go by. You know, how typical the spacing is between the eyes and the nose and, and the chin. There's the face is broken down in thirds, the width of the face. And we followed the basic examples that we were taught. And the pieces of tissue that were missing, we filled in with wax. So that when we photographed it at all the different angles, the artist wouldn't be looking at a gap of skull. He would actually be looking at what simulated to be tissue. Now, the artist was Frank Domingo? Yes. Did you send him pictures or did he come? We physically delivered them. I physically delivered them, and if he I asked him if he if he wanted anything else, uh, Detective Munson and myself would have driven back and whatever we needed to do. I actually had a four-year-old at home, and so did Detective Munson. So it was kind of personal too. So Domingo does the sketch. Nobody doubts the accuracy of the likeness. Domingo was a forensic artist with an international reputation. The problem was that it was kind of scary looking, hollow cheeks and staring eyes, big teeth. She looks as if she lived in the woods where she was found. In a later TV interview with CBS, Frank Domingo describes how he came up with the expression. Nobody knows what she looks like. I tried to put down what I knew existed into a, into a face that would fit. Where I got this look from was I had, I had a picture of some starving children in, in uh, Africa. Here's one of um, a, a little baby from... Um, I think this was Iraq. And you could see it is that same gaunt look in the face. A day later, the sketch was front page news. And that's how the commanding officer of the 3-4 detective squad first learned about the case. Now, I happened to be on vacation, and the more, each morning I'd take a trip to the local store out there. And in doing so, I see a copy of the Daily News. And right on the front page is about this little girl being found up in Washington Heights. That's Joe Resnick. Back in 1991, he was a lieutenant. Today, Resnick is the deputy commissioner of the NYPD's Internal Affairs Bureau, which investigates allegations of police corruption and misconduct. 
Resnick was on a family trip to the Poconos when he heard about the case. Now, keep in mind, this is pre-cell phones. So I got to a phone, called the office, and found out that, in fact, they had found a little girl in a cooler off the Henry Hudson Parkway. I got back to the family, told them pack up, and we returned to the city. And what had your detectives done so far? Well, up until that point, there was like a total mystery. Uh, it was obviously a homicide, uh, just by the circumstances of a child being shoved in the cooler. But the cause or the manner, those are the two things determined by the medical examiner, and they were waiting for the final word on that. As a matter of fact, that took several weeks. And it came back to no strangulation, possible suffocation. But there is this term that they use where you put the totality of the circumstances. For instance, having that child put into a cooler and discarded the way it was, that would automatically make it a homicide. Tied up. Exactly. He showed me a crime scene photo. The cooler is on its side next to a tree. There are branches on top of it. My opinion is similar to most of the detectives is that these people just like put it over the rail and let it roll down. Whether the cooler was placed there or dumped there, the rule of thumb is that you treat a DOA as a homicide until you know it's not. We went with that, um, and they were like on a just on a, a wait now. They started their missing person search because it just made common sense that if a child was missing, possibly a family reported that child missing, and it ended up in the hands of some real pervert or something in the city. Um, so that search was underway. And one of the first things we did was a press conference because by then we had gotten no response from the missing person squad. Resnick had all of the evidence brought back to the 3-4 to be displayed to the media. We sent people out to the uh, property clerk. We got the cooler, we got the green cloth, we got the black bag, we got the cans of Coke, and we brought it all to my office. And we set it up in the back. The whole office stunk. As a matter of fact, the whole precinct stunk. We brought in the media, and within that interview of me showing the items and all, uh, some of them actually threw up, and they had to leave the room. It got all the attention he wanted. Now, Eyewitness News. Our hearts go out to this little girl, and yet three days after her body was found in a cooler in Upper Manhattan, we still don't even know her name. Police are also asking these questions as their investigation continues. Diana Williams reports. Police detectives hit the street today, taping up posters at toll booths along the Henry Hudson Parkway and canvassing a ballpark below where the body was found. Have you ever seen this girl? Do you know of any children being missing that looks something like this? Yesterday, police released this composite sketch of the young girl. At the missing person squad, they've sent out a nationwide computer alert and are cross-checking missing person reports. But so far, nothing. Lieutenant Robert Davis was the commanding officer of the missing person squad. We start our search with New York City, then New York State, then all 50 states. Now, uh, we started out with uh, over 100 reports from throughout the United States, and we're still uh, checking them out now. Nothing matched, not in New York or anywhere else. This is Joe Neenan again, the detective who caught the case in the 3-4. We were all in shock when there was no, no missing report on this child. If you can help, call the detectives at 927... Yeah, there was a hotline that was set up and all kinds of calls came in. We didn't leave any stones unturned. There are now several different rewards totaling more than $7,000. It was shaping up to be one of the biggest cases involving children in New York City in years. Maybe since the disappearance of Eitan Pates in 1979. 
Natan was a six-year-old boy who walked to the bus stop one morning, a block from his home, and was never seen again. He was the first child whose picture was put on a milk carton. We'll be back after the break. Joe Neenan's partner on the case was Jerry Giorgio. Jerry worked out of Manhattan North Homicide. Jerry was, he was, he was a great guy, top investigator, you know. He was the guy you went to when you had a question. He, he, always, he, always had the, he always had the answer, you know. He worked on some huge cases years and years before I even thought of it becoming a cop, <laughs> you know. Jerry Giorgio joined the NYPD in 1959. He'd had over 30 years on the job by then. Cops used the word legend when they talked about Jerry. He was rumored to be the inspiration for Lenny Briscoe, the detective played by Jerry Orbach on Law and Order. That show had come out the year before. Neenan was grateful to have Giorgio on board. The phones were ringing night and day. Detectives wanted people to keep calling, well aware that 99% of the tips, only 99% if they were lucky, would go nowhere. There was the school bus driver in Morningside Heights. She said the sketch looked like an undernourished little girl named Laura who she took to school last year. Detectives found her alive and well. There was the volunteer at Jacoby Hospital who said the sketch looked like a pediatric AIDS patient she used to visit. She knew the room number and when the girl was treated so detectives could rule her out with a couple of phone calls. An odd tip came from an anonymous caller who said the little girl could have been in the papers already. A couple of days before, there was a New York Times story about Nellie Kay. Nellie had a congenital condition called spina bifida, and she lived at the New York Foundling Hospital. A Catholic couple wanted to adopt her, but her parents wanted her with a Jewish family. There was a lawsuit. Today, it would have taken about a minute on the computer to check that one out. Spina bifida is a spinal deformity. Baby Hope's x-rays were normal. A sad story, but not the right sad story. There were a lot of sad stories like that. Young girls who looked hungry or neglected or abused. People would remember they hadn't seen little Maria or Cecilia or Katie lately. And they'd wonder and they'd worry. It was the height of the crack epidemic, so there was no shortage of kids who weren't being looked after. Stories like Baby Hopes don't always bring out the best in people. One of the stranger leads came from the Bronx. It wasn't from somebody with a vague notion about a kid they hadn't seen lately. This time, police had a suspect in custody. There were reports that someone in a dark-colored van was trying to snatch kids off the street. Cops couldn't find anything, but it didn't stop the rumor. A couple of hours later, a mob of vigilantes spot a guy in a Chevy van with Vermont plates idling on the corner. The mob beat him up until the cops came. A detective talks to the guy, let's call him Thomas. It's clear that the detective doesn't see Thomas as a suspect. His clothing is noted, green blouse, blue skirt, but no questions are asked about it. Thomas's story is that he's a construction worker driving to a job in South Carolina. He stopped in the Bronx to pick up a prostitute. He found a woman who says she'll get some marijuana as well. He gives her five bucks, she disappears, and that's when the mob attacks him. He has no idea why. His face is cut from the glass, he's bleeding. He had a dog in the van and it ran away. He wants to know where his dog is. 
There aren't any missing kids in the neighborhood, and definitely none in the van. A different category of lead came from callers who remembered seeing people along the highway. I know that stretch of road. I've driven it hundreds of times, and I've never seen anyone on the shoulder. You can't really go anywhere. There were callers who remembered seeing a man there, or two men, or a small group. There wasn't much detail they could provide passing by at 40 or 50 miles an hour. But there was a woman who gave the detectives a lot more. On Sunday, July 14th, she was in a car with two other people, and she remembered seeing a man and a woman carrying a blue cooler with a white top, walking north on the side of the road. Each had a handle of the cooler, and she thought that the man was in front. They appeared to be in their 40s, about five foot six, Hispanic, she thought, but not Puerto Rican, maybe Colombian or South American. That was a lot more specific than anything the detectives had gotten so far, but the woman wouldn't even give them her name. She had the detectives call her Judy Brown. She said she'd talk to the other people in the car and she'd get back to them if she had anything else to say. Now, one very strong lead that police would like to follow comes from Judy of Westchester, who apparently saw a man and woman carrying an ice cooler here near this spot where the child was found. Judy called the police once, but told them that she really doesn't want to get involved. If you're listening, Judy, forget about the police. Call the two detectives who want to talk to you as concerned parents. Reporting live from the Henry Hudson Parkway, I'm Ed Miller. Back to you. They never heard from Judy Brown again. This is the work that was done in the first three days. It would have been an enormous effort if the detectives had nothing else to do. But the case was homicide number 79 for the precinct that year. It was a bad time for the city. And there was no more violent precinct than the 3-4. If the 3-4 then were a country now, it would have the second highest murder rate in the world, behind Honduras, ahead of Venezuela. Cops in the 3-4 didn't complain about being bored. Here's Sean Kenny again. He was the first officer at the scene. My training sergeant told me, now you're going to hear gunfire all night. They were like, don't bother putting that over the air. It's like, but if you see somebody shooting, that you put over the air. And we'd hear the machine guns go off, and we'd hear gunfire all night long. It was like the Wild West in a way. Detective Joe Neenan again. It was crazy. I was there for four years, and I don't think we ever had less than 100 homicides for the year. It was just a crazy command. NYPD detectives work a four-day week. Two evening shifts, then two day shifts, then two days off. Yeah, most times during the course of your four days, you know, there was going to be a homicide. It was going to occur where you were working or you're going to be helping out on the other team. It was just nonstop, nonstop homicides. This is Joe Resnick. Up in the 3-4 at that time, I just, I'll just throw out some numbers now. Uh, 1991 was the year that the 3-4 precinct peaked in homicides. For that particular year, we had 122 individual homicides. What made this one different, though, is the, it was the fact that it was a child. You know, most of ours were either drug-related. Uh, we had an officer killed up there during my tenure up there. Uh, but they were all important. It doesn't matter. I looked at the log, and there are two days when you had four separate homicides on the same day. A lot of people don't realize what it means to get four homicides in one day. And how many stabbings, how many robberies. The rapes, the GW bridge, you know, being used for a suicide method. 
perps running either from other uh, bad guys or from the police would try to leap from one roof to another. They were quite often unsuccessful. We call it mayhem. But for all the work that was done, the only real development in the first few days was that the detectives gave the victim a name. They decided to call her baby Hope. I'm not quite sure who gave the name. It was either Joe Neenan or Jerry Giorgio, but we stuck with that and it was a perfect name. I asked Joe Neenan the same question. Who came up with the name? That was, uh, was one of the sergeants, Bob Moss. How'd it come about? Well, at some point we said we, we didn't want the baby to be called the cooler kid. So Sergeant Moss, Bob Moss, uh, said, Baby Hope. And it was the hope that someday we would identify her and you know bring somebody to justice. And so she wasn't just homicide number 79 anymore, or the cooler kid, or even the scary looking character in the black and white sketch. She was Baby Hope. on Breaking the Case, the investigation takes the detectives into some very dark places. At one point in the investigation, there were some photos that were sent over to us from Route 46 over in New Jersey. Horrible is like, is an understatement as far as what these things depicted. Breaking the Case is produced by the New York City Police Department and supported by the New York City Police Foundation. Thanks to CBS News, WABC News, the New York Times, and PIX11 News. Thank you for listening. This is Breaking the Case. I'm your host, Detective Carrie Riley. Until next time, be safe.